This week, Addie Robertson joins us. We talk about Google's mysterious lack of app updates, a bunch of Apple rumors, including AR, VR, and the car, and then a little bit of a gadget lightning round. That's coming up now. Hello, and welcome to Flagship Podcast of Postmodern Theory. Hmm. So you did that for you, Dieter. Thank you very much. That's really what we've been about the whole time. It's, it's technically modern, but I, I, I personally think that postmodern is basically modernism by another name, but we can get into that later. It's going to be a weird episode, everybody. <laughs> I'm your friend, Neelai. Dieter Bone is here. I'm your, um, your, your, I don't know. I'm your postmodernist theorist. There you go. Addie hmm. Robertson is here. Hey. We just have a lot going on this. It's a very quiet week. Like we're out of the beginning of the year CES tech news cycle. There's an impeachment trial going on. Like, there's a lot of headlines, but not a lot of news is how I would categorize this week. That's fair. That seemed about right. Yeah. So there, there is a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about all of it. There's some Apple rumors. The, the car stuff continues to heat up and cool down simultaneously. There's a, a, a cookie war on the internet going on. Uh, Elon's doing some stuff. There's lots to talk about. But I want to start where we always start, which is uh, the pandemic, the biggest story in the world. Science Desk has been on a tear this week with uh, vaccine news, vaccine coverage. We're in the thick of it now. Uh, I think Dr. Fauci was saying uh, today, by April, he expects everyone will just be able to get it, which would be remarkable. Yeah, it was like, I forget the quote. It was like, he said, it'll be a free-for-all. Yeah, he said open season, actually, which... Open season. (laughs) For a thing that involves needles is like not exactly the right (laughs) framing. But, you know, we're on on a good trajectory, a little bit of hope there, but also a little bit of chaos. So I'm just going to run down some headlines, but there are... Three vaccines, basically, that are worth talking about. There's the uh, Pfizer vaccine, which is sort of the one that most people around are getting. Uh, There's the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is another mRNA vaccine. And then there's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Pfizer one is out in the world. People are getting it. AstraZeneca has been a little more controversial. Uh, We've got a, a long report on just it's been confusing from the beginning of its process. It doesn't seem to be as effective against some variants as some of the other vaccines. There's just some complication there. It's worth reading about. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not yet approved in the United States. um, And the FDA is embarking on a three-week sprint to review the data and get it approved. I really like that terminology because it makes me think of product managers in tech. Mm Mm-hmm. Like they, they have a Kanban board and they're just like, do it. I don't, I don't know what they're doing, but our science desk goes. So we have a long story on why it is taking three weeks. The J&J vaccine is very important because it's a single shot vaccine that does not require a cold chain to transport. Um, so that the logistics of that vaccine and its development are, are just more favorable to a widespread rollout. So we've got a lot of coverage on that. And then I keep talking about second order effects of the pandemic. There's also second order effects of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So everyone is taking selfies of themselves getting it, which is great. Uh, We have one story about world leaders who are just increasingly appearing shirtless as they get vaccinated. A short sleeve shirt is like available to you. It's almost everybody in the world. You can never argue that Vladimir Putin isn't an influencer because now we're just seeing all sorts of world leaders without their shirts on. He does a great renegade. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're really looking for. And then actually, um, we have a story about why you should not, if you get vaccinated and you get a vaccination card, you should not actually put that selfie with a card on the internet on social media for a variety of reasons that should be obvious. The same reasons you wouldn't want to put your airline ticket, your passport, 
people can fake that stuff. So just lots of coverage on the science test. Again, the vaccine, it, you know, it's a system. Like the way I think about just coverage is like we cover buttons and we cover systems. Like who has the buttons, who gets to press them, when do they press them is like a whole category of coverage. And then how does the system work is a whole other category of our coverage. And the vaccine stuff is very much in the in the zone of here's a system. Is it working the way that we want it to? And how should we better design it? So check that out. It's all over there. Okay. Dieter, there's uh I don't know how to begin with this, except to say Google usually updates its apps every five minutes. Yeah. And on iOS, they have not updated the, the apps for a very long time now in a way that kind of ladders into the entire privacy debate happening on the internet. So do you want to walk us through this one? So iOS, uh, I think they like said it would be in 14, but it's now coming for really real and sort of is really real now, has a thing called a nutrition label, which is on the app store, You it has to disclose all of the tracking and data collection it does. And then in addition to that, um, I believe starting with iOS 14.5, because it got delayed, uh, apps are going to have to put up a pop-up in the app itself saying, hey, is it okay with you if we track you for ad purposes or whatever? And so Facebook put up the its new version of its app, and it had the super, 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 super long disclosures about all the the stuff that it tracks. Speaking of disclosures, my wife works for Oculus Division of Facebook. Snuck that right in there. But Google has not. And so it's like, are they avoiding trying to figure out what they want to say? Are they, do they not know how many different ways they track you? (laughs) What's the deal? It's unclear. Uh, But it, it seems really obvious now that this isn't just a, oh, well, it's a, it's a coincidence. Because uh, for a hot minute this week, Google's own iOS apps were putting up a bug that says, hey, your app is out of date. You should update it, <laughs> which is a common thing. I'd like, you know, I get to see this stuff on Chrome all the time. And, you know, we're administered by, you know, our company and it demands that you update it to keep it up to date. So somewhere in Google's cloud system, it was saying, hey, you need to update your app. Uh, so they fixed that cloud side, but they still haven't figured out, they still haven't put out uh, updated versions like in the App Store itself of all of their apps. Because when they do, they're going to be required to put in that nutrition label. Um, and so it's just a complete mystery as to what is going on with Google's iOS apps and what, if they're like having a, like a full-on months-long fire drill about how they're going to approach tracking in iOS or like there's just like, I don't know, an argument about the language or some other completely unknown, mysterious reason that they have chosen not to uh, update their apps at the cadence that they used to. So I think we too often treat Google like an unruly toddler yeah. that doesn't know what it's doing. And it, like right. sometimes it acts that way. It'll just be clear. And sometimes it's like the best and most accurate Hanlon's razor style explanation of what's going on there. Right. Like my favorite example of this is one time one department at Google scheduled a press conference with us and then another department scheduled a press conference and they didn't we had we were the ones who told them, Yeah, hey, you're having two press events in this. Like, okay. But that's just like big company miscommunication. Mm-hmm. We haven't updated any of our apps on one of the most popular platforms that our apps run on, right? It's not just like one team hasn't done; it's all of them. Yeah, that suggests to me, okay, there's a there is a coordinated response at Google to a policy change in iOS. Yep, it can't just be that they're sitting around. No, definitely not. And <sighs> Google, what, one thing that we often say about Google, and it's often right, is they just are just 
shooting themselves in the foot. They're just like getting in their own way. If Google were to put out an app update like this week when there's not a lot of headlines, but there's 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 a lot of headlines but not a lot of news, like is anybody going to be paying attention to Google's nutrition labels uh, when there's another impeachment trial going on? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I think one of the questions like there's like a longer term. There's the nutrition label. Like here's all the data this thing collects. And yep. for an app like Gmail, it's a lot of data. Yeah. Right. Just because of the nature of what Gmail is. Right. It, like it gets your key. Like you're writing emails. Like it. All of the things that a thing, a, an app can do on your phone, Gmail can do it. It knows your location. It um, can access your camera and your microphone because it can add photos and take pictures. Like it can just do everything that an app can do. Okay. Like, is anyone going to say no? I think f- Facebook has raised this huge fuss about the labels. They're saying Apple's acting anti-competitively. Mm-hmm. They're saying it's bad for small business, which is I okay. Like you, you can say whatever you want, <laughs> but they're making this like full throated argument that Apple's tracking changes are bad. Yep. And Google's just remaining silent. But Google actually has a bigger problem, which is like cookies and Safari in its entire ad business. Yeah. That has nothing to do with the advertising tracking happening in its apps. Or maybe something to do with the advertising tracking that's happening in its apps, because it probably wants to connect whatever tracking it can do in an app, which is going to soon require a pop-up acceptance to whatever tracking it's doing on the web and on its Google properties on the web. And the the larger context, like I can't speak to the cookie stuff inside apps that's like really complicated there's user identification and there's like a special number that the iphone would allow you to attach to somebody for ad identification and a lot of people turn that off and are there other kinds of identifications they're not supposed to be and so if you do some kind of tracking that doesn't use apple's official number you get in trouble like i i get lost there there's an even more complicated I can speak slightly better to it argument over what's going to happen on web browsers because Apple is just straight up like we're blocking third party cookies and like let the chips fall where they may. If it turns out that destroys the ad industry, we don't care. Mm-hmm. And Google is like, but, but, but no, we, we can't destroy the ad industry on the web. That's, we that's, are the ad industry. That's, on the web. <laughs> that's a problem. And so they're trying to create this system, an entirely new system for ad tracking that doesn't involve cookies uh, with Chrome, and they've created this whole thing called the Privacy Sandbox, where there's like a threshold above which you can't be tracked, but as long as you can do stuff inside the sandbox, and it, it, it's a whole thing that doesn't use cookies to track you, but does use other methods because they want to make sure that they give the ad industry some way to track you, because if they don't, they're going to use nefarious means to do it, like uh, browser fingerprinting, which can't be, you know, controlled or blocked or whatever. Didn't Apple um, roll out some some version of blocking fingerprinting where it was just straight up lied to web servers about what the browser was? Yeah. I swear they did this. There's lots of little tricks that uh, Apple does, and now Chrome is starting to, to stop fingerprinting. And it's important to do that because blocking fingerprinting matters because once you get fingerprinted, it's the sort of thing that like you just you can't turn off. There's no controls. Once they once you're pegged, you're pegged. They got you. By the way, a browser fingerprint is like your IP address, the viewport size of your browser, what version of the operating system you're running. Like yep. a bunch of unrelated metadata that is somewhat unique to you. Put it all together and they can identify you. And then they can turn that into identifier. This ostensibly is one of the reasons that Apple was not allowing like Bluetooth access in browsers for games. 
initially, uh, like game controllers and other other things. Like it's like, does Apple hate web apps and they don't want web apps to be able to do cool things like access Bluetooth or the camera, or is it a fingerprinting issue? Because if your browser reports, hey, I have access to Bluetooth, that's yet another piece of metadata that they can add to the stack to create a fingerprint for you. So it's wildly complicated, but Google is basically trying to recreate the entire infrastructure for tracking in a way that is a little bit friendlier, um, while Apple's like, we don't care. Like, ad industry, <laughs> figure it out. And so the, this is the cookie apocalypse, right? Third-party cookies are going to get stopped on Chrome sometime soon, and what will the ad industry do? And I have to assume that there is some connection between all this iOS tracking stuff and the cookie apocalypse and the privacy sandbox in the browser. And there, there's just like, there no, there's no longer smoke-filled rooms, but maybe there's like vape-filled rooms where... <laughs> vape-filled Zooms. <laughs> vape-filled zoom, vape Zooms, that's perfect. <laughs> where Apple and Google engineers are just like having a staring contest over where all this stuff is going to land. Yeah, but, so, but here's my... I, that's what I believe, right? That they're... Apple is saying we're going to turn off all this stuff. Google is saying that will wreck our revenue platform with the web. We don't want you to do that. Yeah. And then the leverage they're creating is we're not going to update YouTube. That makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's no leverage there. But, like, it's weird because, like, their tactic versus Facebook's. Facebook's tactic is to just be super loud about it. Uh, Google's is to not. Like, are they just waiting for all their lobbyists to, like, have their first meetings with the Biden administration before they, like, pop <laughs> off? Well, so I actually, this is the thing I want to ask Addy about. So, Addy, you're uh, on our policy team. We have had you on the show to talk about antitrust a lot. I really just wanted you to hang out, but here we are. And I'm immediately asking you about antitrust. Google is in a different position than Facebook, right? Facebook has its own antitrust problems, sure, but everybody already hates Facebook, including most of the policymakers. They're already in a lot of trouble, and they don't have a phone platform. Like, they don't have the same category problems in antitrust as, as Apple and Google do. Right. All the complaints about Facebook are mostly they bought a company five years ago and they did it wrong. Right. <laughs> and then they were too good at buying companies. But if you look at Google... And they, if Google follows and Apple's moves with Android and they start blocking cookies and pushing you towards a tracking system in Chrome and they start using its own identifiers for the ad network that it controls that runs most of the web, that is a real antitrust problem for them. Actually, Dieter and I have heard from various Google executives in the past, we would love to be better at privacy, but that means locking down cookies on Chrome in, in X, Y, and Z ways, and we will immediately get dinged by the European regulators for locking down Chrome and blah, blah, blah. Do you do you see all this and say, oh, Google just is out of moves? Like they're waiting for the Apple cover to, to come along? I guess I'm just not necessarily clear on how much the nutrition labels matter is the thing. Like, I just, as somebody who clicks through a GDPR or this site, is asking for cookies, can it track you label like 50 times a day? Yeah. I just, I'm genuinely wondering, like not rhetorically, why it is such a big deal to Google. Yeah, I don't, I just, I can't figure out what leverage they're creating by not updating these apps. Like the other antitrust issue is that like most of their things are monopolies. <laughs> like what if they just put up the dire warning for the YouTube app? What do you, what do you need to watch Vimeo? Like you're, <laughs> you're like you're still using YouTube. Like, are you really gonna not use Google the Google search app on your phone? Like it turns out your browser is defaulted to Google anyway. Like, I don't know how harming the user experience is helping them get leverage with Apple or with a regulator in this way. Although that is actually kind of a classic company like 
big company move is to just degrade the user experience by like banning YouTube on a smart TV or something until you're able to broker some kind of deal. It would be amazing. But Google's like too, this is what I mean. Facebook is like, whatever. We're Facebook for billions of people around the world. We are the internet. We're going to do what we want. Screw you. Google like wants to be a lot cuddlier than that. See, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you're thinking of them not updating their apps as leverage in some antitrust standoff with, with Apple or with whatever. I think it's, it, it's more likely that they're not doing it because they're out of fear of like regulators paying attention. They're not doing it out of fear that they'll stop cease being seen as cuddly, you know? I just feel like they stop. I feel like regulators are already incredibly aware of everything that Google is doing. There are already there's a giant case against them. Yeah. There are just tons of suits. Like this is just I feel like it's not adding new information. Yeah. Anyway, so we don't know is the ultimate answer here. It seems like Google should probably update its app soon. We will yeah. continue poking at it and figure out why. But it is I would say it is right now it's a small mystery in tech. But if it keeps going for another week or so, it will become a gigantic mystery in tech. Maybe they just want to add Google Meet buttons to every single Google app instead of just Gmail, and it's an internal <laughs> fight over that. They're going to actually, every Google app is being uh, merged into a messaging service. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got it. That would actually be great if they announced that. If you, by the way, if you know what's going on with Google's apps, like we got email addresses, just yeah. let us know. We're, we're, uh, we're available to hear you at. Other stuff going on. Uh, speaking of antitrust, uh, iOS 14.5 is in beta now. It is slowly but surely Apple is opening up the defaults on its operating system. So when iOS 14 came out, there was a beat, and then you could set Chrome as a default browser and Gmail or other browsers and other email apps as the default. Now in the new beta 14.5, you can set Spotify and other music services as series default music service. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but this to me feels like the biggest capitulation of all. Really? Yeah. Like the default browser and default email is like people who work at Apple had to have been annoyed by that. You know, like it's just an anno- it's like an annoying reality of the iPhone that like for a yeah. long time, the the flow from clicking a link in Safari, opening the weird mail app instead of G- like they had to know that this was confusing people. So they just made it better. Letting you set Spotify as the default is like a lot wonkier, right? It's wonkier, but also like maybe maybe this is wrong because Apple is got just the worst code for Siri ever, but it's probably way easier, right? than it is to like figure out the infrastructure for like completely undoing default apps in, in iOS for core stuff like the browser and email to just like No, it's 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 it might be easier technically, but it's harder emotionally. Right. No, that's what I'm, I'm saying. saying. You could already yeah. say via Spotify. So like they just needed to like let you like turn <laughs> that off and like add a setting somewhere. Um, you know, there's a there's a kajillion horrible settings for the Google Assistant, but like there's settings for that stuff. So yeah, emotionally they had to one accept that they were going to like let Spotify have this one, and two they would have to put a setting somewhere. Yeah, so that's good. It's in beta. We'll have to see how well it works when it actually comes out. Uh, the new beta also lets you use your watch to unlock your phone if you have Face ID and you're wearing a mask, which is I think we talked about this last week. They had to reverse the authentication flow. Yep. Yeah, and I I also like strongly believe that if you do this, you should make sure that you add a couple more digits to your watch unlock process because four a four digit pin is way easier than a six or eight digit pin. Hmm. I have to. I need to take a break and play with my watch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and then two other like still in kind of the antitrust zone. Nick Stat wrote a story. There's an iOS developer who's just been all over Twitter pointing out that the App Store is rife with subscription scams. 
So you sign up for an app. It says pay us 14 bucks a month. It looks like it's just a $14 purchase, but then it just bills you every month. Yep. And these apps are crowding out legitimate apps and legitimate developers. And Apple doesn't seem to be quick on the draw and turning it off. So there's a long story. Many of these apps exist. And that somehow in my mind is paired with this situation in North Dakota. I guess it's not really a situation. There's a bill <laughs> in the North Dakota legislature. Yeah. Uh, we, you can call it the Nodakian legislature, by the way, <laughs> for Nodak and yeah. I feel like you, there's a deep Minnesota story in there. And it's like that door is cracked open. And I don't know. If we should. There was a, a, a Viking. Uh, I forget his name now. I think he was a tight end and he was from North Dakota. And so we just called him Nodak. And that's I'm pretty using, good. Yeah. Anyway, I definitely thought you were talking about a real Viking and this was going to be like North. I also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Anyway, there is a bill in North Dakota that would basically prohibit self-dealing in app stores. David Hanemeyer Hansen, who is the uh, one of the founders of Basecamp, actually testified to the North Dakota legislature. Nick watched that testimony. He wrote that up. This is one of those, like Dieter, you, before he came on, Dieter was asking, like, how did the North Dakota state legislature land on this bill? I don't know the answer, but the bill is good. It's like a well-written, like, if you run a platform, if you run a store like this, it actually calls out, it exempts um, console game stores. Um, but if you run an, a, a general-purpose app store, you cannot require that other people on your platform have to use that app store. You cannot require, like, all of the things that you want from the platform regulation bill, it's in this, like, state-level bill in North Dakota, which is pretty pretty wild. Yeah, although we're like we're used to that with like Illinois privacy laws. Like it's accepted that there's going to be a state that's really good at a specific kind of bill that's going to affect national politics. I, like I California guess maybe, emissions, basically. Maybe North Dakota is the Fortnite V Bucks state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the um, uh, it here, I'm just reading the story here. Uh, three key restrictions for any digital application distribution platform that notably exceeds 10 million in revenue annually. Uh, you cannot require a developer to use a digital application distribution platform as the exclusive mode of distributing a digital product, which means Apple would have to allow other app stores. Uh, you cannot require a developer to use your in-app payments as the exclusive mode of accepting payment. So that's your, the V-Bucks thing. Like Epic would just be able to take payment for V-Bucks on iOS without going through Apple's payment system. And then notably, you cannot retaliate against developers for choosing other stores or payment systems. This is like basically what people want. Let's say this thing passes and in North Dakota, these things become illegal. Does Apple capitulate and change the rules uh, across the planet for North Dakota? Or do they just say North Dakotans don't get iPhones? Yeah, I don't know. So uh, I, we've had Casey on a few times and he's used this word that I, I've always thought about in terms of like the United States and China. He's like, the splinter net is here mm -hmm. where there's one internet for the United States. And it, but now we're going to have like one internet for North Dakota or like one iOS for North Dakota and for everybody else. They're going to geofence the app store. Yeah. Like, can you imagine like people from South Dakota driving to North Dakota to buy V-Bucks with their own <laughs> credit cards? <laughs> like, that would be incredible. That's um, more or less how I grew up. You drive to Oregon to avoid sales tax. Uh, yeah. You, uh, people drove to Wisconsin to buy fireworks. Yep. It's so that, real, but for the internet. That, but for the internet. That's amazing. I would. There's like a business in here, right? Like the North Dakota parking lot for buying digital products. So does it become illegal to export 
iPhones out of North Dakota then? Like, it's illegal to, like, send PlayStations to Iran. It's now illegal to send iPhones from North Dakota to California. I'm always torn on this, right? Like, the argument against all internet regulation, like, everything in my mind comes back to, to net neutrality. I'm very sorry. But I'm just using it as an example. The argument against state-level net neutrality laws was always, you don't want a piecemeal internet. You want one federal law that, like, everybody understands and we didn't get that. So now there's a bunch of state level net neutrality laws and like we don't know how they're going to play out. Now there's a Biden administration, whatever. This is very much the same argument. And I have different feelings about it, which is a bunch of state level app store restrictions seems completely bonkers to me. Yeah. Like our ability to just even describe how the Internet works. If these platforms vary from state to state, we'll just go completely sideways. Like you won't be able to talk about iOS as a product because it will be different depending on where you are. I mean, practically, Neil, like, like you're a lawyer. What are the odds that Apple just sues and then gets a preliminary injunction because they're like, this is bonkers. And then we drag it out for years in court. Um, I mean, you, you, anybody can sue anybody for anything, which is a, a thing I like to remind everyone. <laughs> like, you can file a bad lawsuit. Like, Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not in doubt about the Apple filing suit part. That part's obvious. I don't. I mean, what would they the arguments here would have to be fundamentally North Dakota has exceeded the power of a state to regulate interstate commerce, which is exclusively given to Congress. And you would make some argument that the app store is fundamentally interstate commerce, which is a like it's like a galaxy brain argument. Well, I mean, the app developer is not in North Dakota. Therefore, the app is crossing a state line. Therefore, PK. But what if the data center is in North Dakota? Like you can like <laughs> you can just fall down into the weeds of like where the bits are. Yeah. Well, this also concerns payment processors, right? Yeah. So I don't even know how that plays out. Yeah. So there's like a, there's a whole argument here that the internet is fundamentally interstate commerce, and then you can like fall down that hole. Um, just right. Other I mean, Apple will make other arguments. Like Apple could also just buy North Dakota. Right. <laughs> That'd be incredible. Anyway, I'm I think this is one to keep an eye on. Like it's well written. It makes sense along the lines of the inter- Illinois privacy bills or California emissions. Like it's one of those things where it will at least be a lodestar for how the rest of the conversation goes. But I think paired with like the level of interest in Apple is an antitrust target, which exists with the amount of stories coming out around scams in the store that it's not well pleased, even though it is a monopoly, like Apple's own arguments for why they need the monopoly don't hold up to this, to direct scrutiny of the store and just how frustrated developers are. Like you could get rid of the interstate commerce argument by saying, okay, we should like, Epic Games should be located in North Dakota. And then, like, th- maybe that's how you attract developers to North Dakota. Oh, my God. Just like Delaware is the home of all credit cards, <laughs> credit all, card all corporations. Yeah. It's there's like I said, there's a lot of headlines right now in the news. Like, they, they haven't passed the bill. They're having hearings about it. But it's interesting to see it's filtering down. Now, what used to be like a year ago, this was a relatively wonky and technical conversation about App Store fees. And now we're like Republicans in North Dakota are proposing bills about it. So it's moving fast. Last thing, do you know there's some leaks of Android 12? There appear to be. Um, there's a chance, dot, 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 that these aren't accurate, but they seem, it seems pretty clear. Both XDA developers and Android police are like, yeah, this this seems legit based on what we know of screenshots that were shared to like partners to get themselves ready for it. There's like four things to say about these screenshots. Number one, uh, there's now a little green indicator to let you know if the microphone or camera are on, which sort of seems to be copying iOS. Although people will warn you that uh, Android was developing these indicators 
before they appeared in iOS, <laughs> who's copying who, blah, 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 blah. Number two, it looks hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but people will say that there's like theming systems coming for Android 12, and that's an extension of what already exists on the Pixel. And so maybe this is just like a sample theme or a, a theme that was intentionally made to like not be representative of what uh, Google really wants its version of Android and the Pixel to look like. They're just trying to like make options for other people. Who knows? It's very beige. It's very beige. Like if you look at the the notification center, there's like the rounding around the boxes, but also a carrot for a drop down that really <laughs> shouldn't like be there in a circle. It looks horrible. Squares and circles for different quick setting notifications like whoever made this theme was clearly either just didn't know what they're doing or <laughs> was like saying here are all the possible ways it could look and we're going to put them all in one set of screenshots so that you can see so that's the next thing uh the last thing is it appears as though google is going to be trying to like refresh or reinvigorate its widget system by creating widgets for conversations uh, instead of pop-up bubbles and maybe making it easier to create widgets, uh, maybe creating like a templating system for widgets so that they're a little bit more identifiable as widgets and there's not such a create like Winamp style widget land, which is what Android is like right now. Um, and on top of all that, the, the one piece of the UI that shows the, these widget selectors is a big drawer that slides up from the bottom, which yeah. it's, it's pretty, pretty iOS-y there, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I'm looking at these screenshots, and it took me a long time to realize that all these are characters from Friends. What? Um, and oh, my God. Yeah, all the examples oh, are yeah. Friends characters. Oh, my. How did I not see this? And then I cannot think of a widget that is less useful than an uh, oval that says Rachel two weeks ago chatted. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I chatted with somebody two weeks ago. I need that on my home screen at all times. <laughs> I mean, that is representative of what any Google communications product looks like now for me because it used to be how I communicated with people, but then they switch, like, they switch it over so often that if there's just this slow process of attenuation. And now I have like a call. The chat with my husband from like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. I have a handful of friends who uh, work in banks and they all still use Gchat because it's the it's the one messaging service they can get to on through their bank's firewall. And it's like it's just definitely 2008. It's like my banker friends using Gchat. <laughs> Man, they should just bring back Gchat. OK, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about some Apple rumors. We'll be right back. This is advertiser content. Brought to you by AAA Insurance. Whenever you're experiencing fear, cortisol is our stress hormone, is very prevalent in the brain. And your amygdala, which lives in your limbic system, it is like fire red. <laughs> and it's saying, we are in danger, we are in danger, get away. That's psychologist Dr. Trillian Small. And no, she's not talking about cliff diving or riding a roller coaster. We're actually talking about something much more normal. Sometimes the confusing thing about our brain is the threat can be non-existent. It can be a perceived threat of, oh my God, they didn't text me back. Yep, this is just your brain on love. Oh, there is so much going on when you are falling in love. You then have hormones such as oxytocin and oxytocin really is your primary trust hormone. So in the brain, falling in love looks a lot like falling in trust. And that doesn't just feel good. It makes us more resilient. 
those who have higher levels of trust are willing to take a greater level of risk. The science also says we can build trust like a muscle. So the more we practice it, the more likely we are to take the risks we've always wanted to take, like falling in love or buying a house or our dream car. Making the leap takes trust. That's why people like you have turned to AAA Insurance, one of the most trusted brands in America, to protect life's greatest leaps for over 100 years. Learn more at AAA.com insurance. All right. So there's two Apple rumors that I would say are just on, like, a sine wave of attention. One is the car. We talked about the car a bit last week because we had, we had Sean and Becca. So last week, we'll just do the car first. The last week, the rumor was Hyundai's going to build the car in Georgia. And like yep. Hyundai's stock price was like shooting up. And maybe it wasn't going to be Hyundai and they were going to make Kia do it because Hyundai didn't want And then this week, Hyundai and Kia like released a statement being like, we're not going to do that. One presumes that uh, maybe Apple made a call and was like, yo, don't care what your stock price is. Prices, you're going to, put this press release out. I will say that next to this, now there's a rumor that Nissan's going to do it. So I'm hoping <laughs> that we just go through every car maker. And like, like every time whatever executive is working on the car, like gets off the plane. Like, so we know, like, so we know BMW already said no. Yeah. We know Hyundai and Kia have downplayed it. Nissan's just riding the lightning right now. They're just having a great time. Uh, Toyota, Toyota's gotta be, like, I'm just hoping we like get to the place where like, Jeep is going to build the Apple car and it's going to be a Wrangler. Like, <laughs> let's just go for it. My galaxy brain take on this is this is a conspiracy to uh, ding the stock price of every major car manufacturer so that Apple can just ride in and make its own car and people will think it's legit. I think we just learned that making a car is hard. Yeah. Like if the Tesla story has taught us anything, it's like if you're at the point where you like you built a tent in the parking lot to make a Model 3 and then Elon is showing up on YouTube talking to like, ex-car engineers and being like, yeah, our cars are built kind of shoddily for a while. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how Apple's going to do it. But that is just a, I keep calling it a sine wave. Like the noise about the car, which even the most aggressive rumors are like four or five years out. Yep. That it just keeps coming and going in ways. Because I think they do need a manufacturing partner because Apple's not going to build a car factory. They don't even own a phone factory. I doubt they're going to build a car factory. Yeah. You know what they could do, though? They could build a TV if they wanted to. Let's just just bring that noise back. What if they use the Foxconn factory to build cars in Wisconsin? (laughs) (laughs) Think about it. There was an old AMC factory in Kenosha. Like, one of the stories of Wisconsin is they used to build AMC Eagles. I'm old. There was a very ugly car in the 80s called the AMC Eagle. Yeah, yeah. And they used to build it in Kenosha. And, like, everyone around me in the 80s, like, would proudly have an AMC Eagle. It was not a beautiful time for car design in southeastern Wisconsin. And that factory left. And that's like the whole, it's like one of the inciting incidents in why Wisconsin is the way it is today. But what if like Apple rolled in and they're like, we're going to build cars in this orb? <laughs> think about it. <laughs> All, right. All right. So that's one rumor. It's on a side wave crazy. Addy, this is a rumor I really want to talk to you about. The rumor about the Apple VR or AR headset or mixed reality, I've now heard it called all three things. Oh, that's accurate. Extremely high level of noise. And we can't, we still, I don't know. Do you have a sense of what's going on? I mean, I have absolutely no idea in the sense of what Apple is actually doing, but the rumors are super high resolution display, like 8K per eye. And it costs a ridiculous amount of money, like $3,000. And the idea is that you get this thing that is kind of like a proof of concept for what Apple could do for both augmented and virtual reality. Like it's mostly a VR headset, but it has these LiDAR cameras that will let you like track space and you can 
maybe turn on pass through video and kind of see what the real world looks like, that it's like this proof of concept that it sells as nominally a consumer product, but mostly to developers to build an ecosystem. Uh, it's sort of like magic leap, which is a <laughs> phrase that if anyone utters it in relation to your plan, you should think hard about your plan. <laughs> so they have uh, reassigned uh, one of their executives, Dan Riccio, to oversee these devices. He's legit. We, we like know him. He's been around for a long time. He is generally successful. What I'm stuck at is there isn't a display technology for AR that works well. That's actually the, the magic leap story in some very important way is about the failure to deliver a display technology, right? And I keep thinking about that wired story about Magic Leap from years ago where they weren't allowed to describe the thing, only the feelings it produced. It was like a Kevin Kelly cover story. It was a good piece. Uh, it was a very representative of a particular period in tech piece. I'm glad that piece exists. It was like a nightmare when I actually was covering Magic Leap and I had no <laughs> idea what this thing was. Yeah, I feel like it just depending on your point of view, that, that piece is either it, it's held up or not. But the inside of it was a description of a display technology where Magic Leap had this idea that it was uh, the, well, the quote was like, it's going to hack the GPU of your brain. Right. It was, and we puzzled over what this meant. And eventually they shipped a thing and it was just an LCD screen in front of your eyes. No GPUs were hacked in any way, shape or form. It was it was a waveguide. Yeah. But the core display technology was an LCD with a waveguide. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. But the idea was they were going to shoot photons at your retina in some crazy way that would make you actually perceive depth. And the idea was basically, yeah, that they had managed to never they had managed to get this as like a giant machine, but they never miniaturized it. Right. And uh, what I'm all I'm getting at is like, I'm pretty sure the story of AR is a big consumer product that is expressed as like the cool glasses you put on your your head. They're lightweight is really the story of can anyone develop this display technology? Right. Like. You don't want to wear see-through LCDs on your eyes. They are a little power hungry. Like we just we just kind of know what LCDs can and can't do. You can make a really high-res VR headset, festoon it with cameras, and then have pass-through video and like make something that sort of feels like AR. Like that seems more possible than any AR display tech that I've seen so far. Have you seen any promising AR display tech? Because that it seems like the blocker that all of these ideas have run into. It depends on like what you mean by promising. If all you need is a really specific smart display, then you can there's technology that like looks really good when you look through it as a hologram, but it has a super limited field of view and it's also just makes you look ridiculous, which okay, that's everything. <laughs> um and it's not like it's still not totally solid. Like it's a thing that's really limited and that has really high expectations around it. Whereas pass-through video is has the disadvantage of like not actually letting you see the real world. It's feeding you a video feed of it, but you can control the experience so much more. Like Apple's not the first per uh, company to do this. Varho is a uh, like enterprise focused VR AR company. And they have this headset where the idea is it's one incredibly high resolution, tiny, tiny, tiny display in the middle of a larger, like 2k display for each eye. And so you're getting in the uh, part of your face that you're usually looking in into, you're getting a super like real eye resolution image. And then everything around you is like, yeah, it's pretty good. So it simulates like foveated rendering, which is a tech that lots of AR VR headsets use. So this is like your peripheral vision is not so great, but what you're looking dead on is very Yeah, It's sharp. really, it's really good. Um, and that headset is more than the Apple headset is at this point. 
But again, they're marketing it to businesses. I mean, that's, but that's where we've seen a lot of sort of MR and AR get marketed, right? Like HoloLens is marketed at businesses right now, at enterprises. Uh, Google Glass, which appears to continue to limp on. I don't think it limps. I think it like scuttles. It's like it got very small. Yeah, but it, but it, it's an enterprise product. Like, yeah. it's pointed there. And that to me is like, it's because if you can come up with a good enterprise use case to wear something bulky on your head, you might convince your employees to wear the headset on your head. Also, businesses just operate at a really different money scale than normal people. That's true. We should start a, we should sell something to businesses. Hmm. Okay. Business t-shirts. <laughs> it's right up there with my idea for a parking lot in North Dakota where you download apps. So the reason that they would put out a VR headset to build an ecosystem is to overcome their inability to ship the consumer product they really want to ship. But the only reason you would want to accelerate a developer ecosystem is to have a first mover advantage, right? So all the, they build all the apps for you instead of, I don't know, the Oculus or whatever. Yeah, the thing that is totally wild speculation on my part is that Apple has been, this has been rumored for like five years. It's just perennially a rumor. And that is that Apple is scared that they're going to lose out the develop, in the developer ecosystem because Facebook has like, it has just an incredible first mover advantage at this point. It created a really cheap VR headset that has relatively wide adoption. Like it's making a fair amount of money and they're going to release something that's like a quasi AR smart glass with Ray-Ban this year. So they've got VR and AR covered. They're sort of starting to introduce what their AR headsets can do. And they already have a bunch of developers on board. Facebook has gotten really good at buying VR studios or just throwing money at other VR studios. Whereas Apple just doesn't have that yet. Yeah. Where Apple has the LiDAR sensor in the iPhone and AR gimmick demos at every keynote. Right. And they, I think their strategy was, we'll just have the developers build it on the phone first. And then when the product is here, there'll be a ready-to-go ecosystem in classic Apple format, right? They would they would bring the developer on stage at the keynote, and that person would be like, I took 48 hours and reconfigured my app from the iPhone to the new headset, and now it's great, and you can buy it today. Like, Which is just a nightmare. Like, who's, The best AR apps are like a measuring tape. <laughs> yeah, I will say, um, I think I... I've said it on the show. Like we bought a quest on a whim. My wife absolutely loves the supernatural workout app. And then we have just, anybody who has seen it or heard her talk about it, like we have just sold four more quests because they're cheap. Like it's two ninety nine, and people are like bored and at home and then you can't get a PS five anyway. So they're just like, screw it. And they, they buy a quest. And that is like, once you get that installed base, the question is whether Apple can come in with a substantially better product. And I just like want to be clear, I'm not even being flippant like AR apps are bad. It's just that they serve a really specific need. Like the measuring tape is great on a like a tablet or a phone, but it's really hard to translate your iPhone app to an AR headset. Like phone AR doesn't translate great to AR headset. And that's a really weird strategy for them to adopt if they're going to do it. Wait, describe that more. Why doesn't phone? Because I think most people listening to this have probably experienced phone level AR, right? Apple does a lot of demos. There's a lot of gimmicks. Like even their event invites have phone AR gimmicks in them now. Why doesn't it translate well? Because the thing that actually matters with AR is not the image that you're seeing through the screen. It's the way that you interact with it. So, for example, one of the big things that people really want out of AR glasses is I don't have to have a monitor because I can just pin a virtual screen to my wall. That's a use case that makes absolutely no sense on a tablet, because why would you hold up a tablet to look at a screen on your screen? Like, that's ridiculous. And conversely, if you have, say, an AR game where a bunch of it is still based on tapping the screen 
or like doing things where you're still interacting with it like a smartphone, then suddenly you put on AR glasses and you just you have a completely different interaction system based on your hands. It's also a thing where it is designed for you to not have to take it off, really. Like you're just supposed to be wearing these things all the time. And the thing that's valuable about that is that you get persistent contextual information. There are things that definitely work on both systems, like auto translate is a really great idea that I think would translate great over to glasses. But like the way that people in VR, they started like, oh, we're going to put Quake on this. Quake's going to be awesome. If you played Half-Life, play Half imagine Half-Life in VR. And then everyone realized that was actually a terrible idea that like putting just porting first person games over to VR was way less successful than playing with a VR headset and figuring out what worked and making a thing for it. Yeah. Also, every one of those shooter games makes me sick in VR. It's like that's the line. The second the game starts moving in like that space in Z space, I'm like, I got to take that off. I mean, the, the thing is, they reverse engineered it pretty well at this point though, like there's a really good Half-Life game in VR now, but it's because they took that intermediate step to figure out what worked in VR first. Yeah. And so maybe the idea is you're going to put out the expensive headset that is an approximation in VR of what AR could be like, and then the developers will make the AR things. Maybe I, I just can't help. Like, I can't shake the feeling that what this is saying is just, Hey, this is the best we got. We're Apple. (laughs) Buy it. I mean, people buy Mac Pros, they buy expensive Apple products for all kinds of reasons. Like, it's not bad for them to have a concept car to get people in the stores. That is a a well-recognized model for getting people to go to a store again when it's time to go to a store again. The thing I'm actually most excited about is that it mentions a thimble-like accessory. Like, interface is so much the most interesting thing about AR VR. I want to know what the thimble does. It's probably just like a digital crown or I will say this is like uh, the the most Apple part of it, right? Apple's very proud of reinventing user interface paradigms. And I, I'm making fun of the digital crown because it's the last one they, they tried to invent. But like the mouse, the click wheel, the touchscreen, those are gigantic Apple paradigm shifts in human computer interaction. And then when they put out the watch, they put up the digital crown next to those things. And they're like, we did it less i would say less successful than multi-touch uh or the mouse <laughs> just put it up. maybe a controversial opinion maybe there's some digital crown stands out there so I, I think a good question is what will they think is the paradigm shift of interaction for ar and is it just a, th- a button you wear on your thumb i mean i was thinking before the show like yeah if anybody can make hand interactions like just hand tracking work it probably is apple like they've got a pretty good track record there but Apple's really into haptics, right? Like the one of the like if one of the stories of the iPhone over time is that the haptics have improved so much they've been able to remove buttons and just fake you out. Story of the Mac too. If their AR ideas, you're just going to stab at buttons and not receive any feedback. That would be really weird. Maybe the thimble is like a rumble pack. Amazing, like a really good rumble pack. All right. Well, we have arrived at predicting uh, an Apple thumb thumb sleeve that is a rumble pack. I think it's time to take a break. But these are the two rumors. Like, it's weird, Dieter, I would say. It's weird that we haven't heard peep about a TV. We haven't... They have a TV service. We haven't heard about a new Apple TV. Like, this thing they said they were going to do has all but died on the vine. The most natural consumer product for them to make. They've just let it go. And all we are hearing about is rumors about things that seem either insanely hard, like a car. And I, I, we could probably talk about that car for another hour. Like... I don't know why they want to make a car. It just doesn't seem like a, 
a good like what how many cars are they gonna make are they gonna make one crossover and be like we're just competing with this like apple likes to make expensive things is it gonna be expensive and they're gonna leave out the enormous market of thirty thousand dollar cars like it's just a very complicated thing for them to want to build when there are simpler things that they're not building yeah just make a tv i wonder if in a meeting there's like one apple executive who's just like doodling we should just make a tv and like <laughs> circling it over and over again He's got his iPad out, and it looks like he's diligently taking notes. But it's just he's a drawing a rectangle TV. over and over again. I'm like, what's that rectangle you're drawing? Oh, it's a display for a um, a uh, car. Yeah, it's a display for a car. Oh yeah, we should make a car. That's a great idea. <laughs> There's got to be like the set of accountants who are like, why are we? We could just make it. We already. You just glue it to the back of an existing TV. Like, we just buy Samsung TVs and put Apple TVs in the back of them and like put them in aluminum and sell them for $8,000 and people would buy them. Well, if you're out there, please send me your screenshots. I can maybe connect that to the VR thing, full disclosure, et cetera. Apple has a tendency to refuse to make things that they think they think are cheap or junky, right? Like the, there's the very famous Steve Jobs quote that, you know, we just don't make junk. And so it may be that the explanation for why is Apple rumored to be making a $3,000 headset is that they just think that all the other headsets aren't up to the level of quality that they think is the right level. And so that's that there's like no more complicated explanation than that. They think it's good. They think what they've got is good. It ends up costing this much. So they're going to find a use case for it, but they refuse to make like, you know, the trio, right? They refuse to, they could have made something cheaper, but they, they think that there needs to be a certain level of something, visual fidelity, the rumble pack thimble, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Um, and that, that's, that's like the actual explanation here. I don't know. Yeah. I think that totally makes sense, except that the, there is a leaked image from the information and it looks so janky. <laughs> yeah. It's like the one thing they should definitely copy from Oculus is like the clicky headband. Oh God. Yeah. No, that it's, you hate the clicky headband. It's just a weird, like, it looks like an Oculus Go. Like, I really, I genuinely do believe, yeah, Apple's thing is, like, they make stuff that looks really, really good. And it's not necessarily technically revolutionary, but it has amazing ergonomics and it does something just, like, that makes it magical to use. I'm hoping that screenshots, just, that image is just wrong, because I would like to believe that. Yeah. And then you find out that, like, to charge it, you have to turn it upside down and put, like, lightning in the top. There's just, like, it's Apple. All right, we're going to take a break and we got a grab bag of gadget news to talk about. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Dieter, there's just a lot of a lot of little gadget stuff to go through. What, do you want to start with the Surface? So uh, Microsoft dropped the price of the Surface Duo, their two-screen Android phone thingamajig in the U.S., and they're also releasing it in Europe next week, and it's still in Canada, and like it's like full price in those places for some reason. It still has not fundamentally changed from when I reviewed it, so the software is still chock full of incredibly good ideas, incredibly badly executed. <laughs> the camera is still terrible. Um, the processor is still outdated now, and it was outdated kind of when they released it. So great that it's coming to more regions, but I don't know what's going on with it. Actually, uh, Windows Central did a story not too long ago. They missed they missed one of their promised software updates and their cycle of software updates. So I would like to know what Microsoft's big plan is for the Duo and for Android in general. I'd like to know what the big plan is for the Neo, if that's still coming, and like Windows 10X in general. There's a lot of questions that Microsoft needs to answer in 2021, ranging from, can you make Windows on ARM good enough to compete? Can you make a Windows machine on one of Intel's new chips that feels like it's on par 
with uh, the M1 chip and whatever Apple's coming uh, got coming up on the new MacBook Pros. Intel just released a bunch of like cherry picked benchmarks to say that they're just as good as the M1, and we're all just like, okay, no. So like. Microsoft Surface products have actually got a ton of questions, and it's sort of like all riding on Panos Panay, who is like basically running all of their consumer stuff from software to anything that's not Xbox, basically, that you can go buy. And I have no idea what is going to execute well and what is not going to execute well this year. But um, the biggest question marks for me are what's going on with Windows 10X and the Duo. And I mean, the the answer for the ARM stuff is it won't be great. And the answer for the Intel stuff is it'll be good enough. I think this is pretty clear, unless there's a shocking surprise somewhere in a chip foundry that I don't know about. Well, Intel has a new CEO. Yeah, but I mean, he just started. <laughs> he, he actually hasn't started yet. He starts, uh, he starts in four days. Okay. I know this because we're trying to get it. Uh, his name is Pat Gelsinger. We're trying to get him on. And they're right. like, we can't put him on your show until he starts. That's fair. <laughs> Which is a good excuse. <laughs> but like, I'm all, you know, yeah. the, the backstory of booking a podcast is you send a lot of annoying emails. That's just um, how you do it. Can I can I admit something here? Speaking of the duo, yeah, I was gonna buy one. I was gonna buy, see if I could buy one cheap or something, and they're hard to find cheap, which is surprising. But with the price drop, I was like, mm, yeah, maybe because I just I want to watch what they do with Android because I think Android UI is a really fascinating thing um, on dual screens and folding phones and whatever. So I went to buy one, and uh, Microsoft's website doesn't work. <laughs> Uh, at different at different zoom levels at different browser widths, their breakpoints are broken, so the buy button just disappears unless you like Amazing. resize your browser. Um, but the admission is, I eventually found a way and I bought a Surface so I could play around with the Surface, even though I know it's objectively a bad phone. And don't do what I did. <laughs> did you buy it before the price dropped? After the price drop, the okay, price drop is what inspired. I genuinely, I kind of want one. Yeah, I no. really want a folding phone so bad. As a physical object, it is the best thing. And even if I just end up using it for like reading Kindle books and like. Doing the crossword, I I mean that's not value. You could do that with a thirty dollar <laughs> Android phone, um, but like I do want to I do want to sort of continue to like play around with their software paradigms. Same thing with like the Z Fold two. Like those are the two things. And the big yeah. question for me with folding phones is like, is Google gonna like take Samsung's pretty good execution and Microsoft's pretty good ideas and like just put them together into a version of Android that actually is really good on um, more different kinds of screens. Yeah, I feel like these screenshots of Android 12 indicate that Google's priorities lie elsewhere, but we'll see. Sonos had a monster quarter. You know, I, every time we have Patrick Spence on the, the show, I always tease him that his business model is like millennials buying ever bigger houses so they can buy more Sonos speakers. Turns out in a year when everyone stayed at home, People put Sonos speakers in more rooms. <laughs> so they had a great year. Uh, and it sounds like they're putting out a tiny little Bluetooth speaker. Yeah. He also said on the earnings call that they're 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 planning on hitting like a two product a year cadence or continuing that cadence. Um, and so if you're going to do that, like eventually, eventually you run into like doing the thing everyone's wanted you to do in the first place. Right. Which is make a little Bluetooth speaker. Here's my question. What can Sonos do in a more portable Bluetooth speaker that makes it a Sonos speaker besides like it connects to the Sonos network and Wi-Fi. Is there some sound quality thing? Is there some, like to me, if they, if they just like make a UE boom that like hurts the Sonos brand. Cause it's like just not good enough to be a Sonos speaker. No, I think it'll be fine. Yeah. And okay. just, they'll just make it seem a little bit nicer and make it more expensive and people will buy it. Yeah. They, they have that, this, it's this like, why is Apple making a $3,000 headset? 
Like Sonos is like, well, that one costs $150. Ours costs $200 and has this logo on it and people will just buy it. Yeah. Uh, that's my theory. And you know, a shaky Google assistant implementation. No, I'm not better. Tell me about this laptop with seven screens. It's a laptop with seven screens. What else do you need to know? <laughs> it's so cool. No, it, you need to know that they like fold on each other. Like, I don't know, the robot in a cartoon or something that is trying to attack you. And so it just folds an increasingly bizarre num- like, amount of weapons out of its body. Like, this isn't like the razor thing where it's very neat. Like, oh, it's a piece of paper and it folds out. No, this thing just like proliferates. Yeah. So it's uh, Expandscape has made it. It's called the Aurora 7. It is gigantic. It even has a like cartoon name. That's great. I mean, it looks like a ThinkPad from the 80s. I honestly thought this was a prototype when I first saw it. Uh, it's amazing. You should just go look at a picture of it, I think, is all the more we need to, to say. Also, I love that it's called a laptop. Like, who's going to put this on their lap? Uh, uh, day traders. <laughs> I mean, this is like the ultimate GameStonk laptop. That's all I got to say to you. There's rumors that Amazon's going to build an Alexa wall controller. Yeah, finally. I'm sorry. Like, if you talk to anybody in the last, like, five years ago, be like, what is the future of the smart home? They'll be like, oh, there's like a cool screen on your wall that, like, do- controls your whole house and does all the things. Um, and instead, we got a, a cylinder speaker and then we got a uh, little screens and then we got a screen that now is coming soon. You will like turn and face you. But no one ever like went back and said, oh, that Crestron panel on the wall. We're just going to make that, but with our cool UI and a big, colorful touchscreen. I'm sort of shocked that it took them this long to come around to just making this thing. It's weird because there's a lot of ways to put iPads in your wall. And that yeah. is just not a great, no. for a variety of reasons, it never works. Well, I wonder if Amazon is basically doing like a Fire tablet in the wall situation. Well, that would be bad. That's um, what I'm saying. Well, actually, what do Amazon Echo screen devices run on? Because I don't think it's Fire OS. It's not Fire OS. It's yeah, which means custom. that they've got the same situation Google does, where Google's got a whole bunch of like Chrome smart screens, Chrome-based smart screens for the Google Assistant, but they've got they got you know Android and Android things. We used to like have knockdown, dragout arguments with like Google executives of why isn't this running Android or Android things, and why is it running a variant of Chrome and Chrome OS, and what's the story, and will you ever merge the things? And that that kind of went nowhere because it turns out nobody cares what's running behind your smart screen. <laughs> that was their answer. I mean, I think we did this on this show with Rishi, yeah. who runs all that stuff. And he's like, you are the only people who care. Yep. I, I He was like, I applaud you for caring. You're the only people who care. But um, the reason to care is you can, like, hack on it. Like, the Nintendo Switch is just, uh, there's a hacked version of Android 10 that you can put on it now, which is, you know, better than a lot of cheap Android phones are getting. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it'd be fun. I don't know. Last little grab bag things. Uh, Sony, we have a great story about the PS5 controller, which I now have a PS5 and I didn't realize this, but there are the controllers are injection molded with 40,000 little PlayStation circles and X's and squares. Just read that story. It's just a fun manufacturing story. I want to talk about the Tesla Bitcoin thing in just this way. Uh, so Tesla is buying $1.5 billion of Bitcoin, which Tesla is a company founded for environmental reasons, right? Like Musk thinks we should electrify the world and be better at the climate. Bitcoin sucks a lot of power. We have a story about those two competing priorities. And also to point out that giving, if you have Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. what it's doing right now is appreciating. And if you have a car, what it is doing is depreciating. Mm -hmm. So you should not trade your appreciating Bitcoin for a depreciating Tesla. I think if Musk gets people to buy cars and Bitcoin, he's, he he will be cemented as the greatest business genius of all time. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely. Musk also has promised the mayor of Miami 
uh, that he will build a hyperloop under the city for for thirty million dollars, which is like an incredible promise that will never come true. But I appreciate that he makes the promise. I'm also increasingly angry at the hyperloop and the tunnels. Like like just put a train down there; it, can, it holds more people. Do you remember when uh, the city of Chicago said that? There's going to be a Hyperloop to the airport. I do. Yeah. My sister still asks me when the Hyperloop to the airport is coming. I'm like, it's not. Just stop talking about it. And then, Addy, I, I want to run through, uh, before we go, there's like four little, again, headlines, not really news, but just some policy things. We are tracking this. We don't really know what's going to happen yet. Uh, there's a global chip shortage, like a semiconductor chip shortage. Ford actually had to stop making the F-150 because they ran out of chips for it. GM has had to stop making cars. It has hit the car industry first. The Biden administration says they're going to do something about it. Do we have any sense of what they could do? I'm not sure. I'm. This is like, I should just say that this is semiconductors is not my area. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump ended up in a trade war with a bunch of companies that work in semiconductors. So that presumably doesn't help. Yeah, I mean, this is one way we just have to keep track. Like I said, headlines, but not news. But it is true that Ford has had to stop manufacturing its most profitable vehicle right now. We talked at the beginning about net neutrality when the Trump administration or the Trump FCC, I should say, undid the net neutrality rules. There were a bunch of state level net neutrality rules, California among them. The Trump Justice Department sued California over having net neutrality rules. Biden administration is dropping it. That feels connected to the fact that the Biden FCC is probably going to just reinstate net neutrality in some way. I mean, it definitely seems like it's not going to challenge state net neutrality laws. I think that I'm not really sure what its priorities are going to end up being just because net neutrality was kind of a knockdown drag out fight years ago. But yeah, it's not out of the question. And then lastly, Addie, you uh, wrote this week, Section 230 turned 25 uh, this week. And you wrote you wrote a, a great piece, which kind of lays out the big tensions in any reform effort. And we've got a, a live event coming up i going to have some names. I can't say who yet. You know, I can get... say next week. Next week, we can say who. Next week, I believe you can also say when. Yes. This is how you do it. you got to build the hype. It's like selling a sneaker, only it's a Correct. live stream about 230. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, um, give us a sense, you know, you wrote this piece, but it turned 25. There is a new administration. There's a lot going on. There's a bill, the Safe Tech Act, Safe Tech Act that came out. What is the current status of 230 reform? Uh, current status is everybody hates 230. The Safe Tech Act, Tech Act wow, no, I can't say it either, uh, is wild because it is just like there are huge categories of things now and we're going to make sure Section 230 doesn't apply to them. Like categories like harassment, where the entire bill just reads like they took a bunch of unpopular case is from like the last five years, like a grinder harassment case or anything that Facebook has done in Myanmar. And we're just like, how can we write a law that's going to let us prosecute those things? And that's like a weird way to write a law, because it turns out that they may have accidentally just cut Section 230 off for anybody who runs a commercial website, depending (laughs) on how you interpret it, because they were going after like ad placements. So, yeah, they're just there's this giant nuke on the table now. And we already knew Biden didn't really like 230, but now it seems like Facebook is putting its weight, it seems like really clearly toward, we just want everybody to have to issue transparency reports. Mm -hmm. They put out a transparency report this morning and were like, so Congress, you should look at this. Um, And so it, like Section 230 is weird because every bill does something completely different. It's not like net neutrality where, oh yeah, you're kind of looking for different ways to get to the same place. So there's just going to be this really weird array of legislation that we're going to have to look at over the next year. Yeah, I would connect that to a story actually McKenna put up right before we came on. Um, 
where you, you kind of watch like QAnon hop from platform to platform. So there was a lot of QAnon on Twitter and Facebook, and then it all got banned, and they all moved to Parler, and then Parler was shut down for all of its reasons. And it moved QAnon moved to another platform called Clapper, and the Clapper CEO today was like, "Well, we're banning QAnon," and it kind of doesn't. Even if you are, even if you say you're the platform that's not going to moderate, you absolutely end up moderating. It is a thing you need to do, and the reason they can all do it right now is two thirty. I am hoping that you know as these bills come through. We don't just hear from Dorsey and Zuckerberg, but like the poor CEO of Clapper is like, I'm trying to run the one that you all want. And like, I need to moderate the crazy. Like, we don't hear enough from those people. We don't hear from, I think every time you're on, we talk about the knitting forum. Like, we need to hear from like that broad array of service providers that are much smaller that depend on this law just to exist. Yeah. Well, especially if you genuinely do think that there are problems with 230 because say it enables platforms to not police harassment enough, like whether or not I agree with that, if you think that's a real problem, like the small players are the people you should be talking with to figure out if there is a solution that doesn't hurt them. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Okay. We are, we're sort of on time. We didn't go over. Right. Isn't everybody proud of us? Yeah. We did it everybody for once. Thank you for listening. That's it. Rock and roll. Wear a mask. Maybe two. is really transformational. Today, CRISPR for breakfast, brought to you by Novartis. This is not the future anymore. This is the present. A global healthcare company that's reimagining medicine. Just the tip of the iceberg. CRISPR, it does sound a lot like a breakfast cereal, but what is it really? Think about it as a pair of programmable molecular scissors that can cut anywhere we target. Susan Stevenson heads up the Cell and Gene Therapy Initiative at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. So how did CRISPR get in your breakfast? When CRISPR was observed by researchers in the early 2000s, it was heralded as a miracle cure for yogurt. That's right. Yogurt is basically made from bacteria, which can get viruses just like you and I can. (laughs) Food scientists discovered this strange repetitive DNA sequence in the genome of certain strains of bacteria that are used in dairy production. Turns out it was actually an immune system enabling the bacteria to fight off viruses by cutting their DNA into bits. So the researchers turned CRISPR into a technology using it to vaccinate yogurt and cheese cultures against infection. One giant step for the dairy industry. Not too earth-shattering for anyone else. Until scientists outside of the dairy world started asking... Apart from cutting the DNA of viruses, can this also do something else? Dominic Hefner is the Director of Genomic Science at Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. Scientists are now using CRISPR on human cells in labs around the world. In the hands of the scientists, we use parts of the CRISPR machinery to cut DNA in desired places to alter the genetic code of cells. Hupfner's team is using CRISPR to study the roots of the disease. 
Other groups are designing CRISPR-based technologies to treat disease. Currently, the most promising applications are so-called monogenetic diseases, so diseases which are really caused by one error in the genome. In other words, CRISPR is ideal for treating diseases caused by a mutation in a single gene. Diseases like Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, muscular dystrophies, beta-thalassemias, inherited retinopathies, and there's many others. CRISPR, it turns out, may enable researchers to carefully snip DNA and fix broken cells at the genetic level. Susan Stevenson and her colleagues at Novartis are developing a CRISPR-based therapy for sickle cell disease. That's a genetic condition that affects the shape and function of the body's red blood cells, leading to pain crises and significantly reducing life expectancy. The Food and Drug Administration has approved plans for a clinical trial of the experimental therapy. We take the patient's own cells, we deliver the components of the CRISPR system into the stem cells, and then we reinfuse those gene-modified stem cells back into the patient. The idea is that the repaired cells will then flourish and fill the patient's bloodstream with healthy blood cells. Unlike traditional medicines, this treatment targets the root cause of the disease at the molecular level. CRISPR is just one of the technologies that's powering cell and gene therapy, an exciting new approach to treating disease. These treatments are designed to be given just once. So one-time therapies can result in a potentially lifelong cure with just a single treatment. For the first time, scientists really have a tool in their hands that allows them to dream and think of potentially being able to really correct the underlying cause of disease. So, despite its humble origins in your breakfast bowl, this revolutionary technology has huge potential. And for Dominic Hepner, CRISPR is more than just another tool in the geneticist's toolbox. It represents a huge leap forward in shared scientific knowledge. The story of CRISPR actually shows how siloed thinking hampers scientific progress. I mean, key breakthrough often happens when experts of different fields combine know-how. And only when gifted bacteriologists and mammalian cell biologists started to work side by side, the true potential of this discovery was realized. For more information on how Novartis is reimagining medicine, go to novartis.com slash cell and gene. 